We are starting, though, in downtown Vancouver, and the long-awaited Granville Street Renewal Project is being discussed by Vancouver City Council today. So what might that stretch of Granville Street look like in the future? Well, Jeff Gwinnard joins us now, Executive Director of ABLEBC, that Species Alliance of Beverage Licensees. Jeff, thank you so much for being with us. It is my pleasure. When we look at this plan, and it's a lengthy report that is being discussed mm-hmm. at Council, what are your thoughts as far as what you would like to see change or improve in that Granville Entertainment District area? Well, let's start by saying like this, this is tremendously good news. This is really exciting. If we're going to call ourselves a world-class city, we need to have a world-class entertainment district. And that all starts with having a plan. The problem we've had is there's been very little coordination of what we even want the Granville Entertainment District to be. We're, we're still basing decisions off of a, a 1975 downtown official development plan. Now, I'm in my 40s, and I wasn't even alive when that plan was written. So you can tell it's not reflecting contemporary realities. But look, anybody walking down Granville Street, you, you can tell it's not what it could be, right? We do pretty well with the nighttime economy, but we also have you know SROs and social housing just to block off of it. Like, putting those in the same area as the entertainment district, which is some of the most valuable real estate in the province, just doesn't really make sense. And just because we haven't planned it out properly. So what's passing today at city council is a plan to begin that process to find out what we want this group, this district to be and build those world-class cultural entertainment and artistic options that everybody will be able to enjoy. When we look back kind of at how it's changed as well and, and when it kind of became that entertainment mall and the idea that it would be a destination. I I mean, it seems like even though there was perhaps a good idea there or some vision there, it didn't really play out the way it was expected to. Then the pandemic hit, as we know, and it became Mm -hmm. pretty much a ghost town for for a couple of years. How has that kind of impacted a lot of the businesses? Well, it's been difficult for the businesses in that area, obviously. Uh, but I look at it as, you know, you go down Granville Street now, there's a lot of empty storefronts, people who didn't make it through the pandemic. That means now is the right time to have a plan to determine what we want to do with those storefronts and what are we going to do with the area. During the pandemic, we also had some of the hospitality businesses on the street that managed to make it through. But we did things like having temporary patios. It's a good time to talk about do we want to make those permanent because patios are great for citizens, they're bad for parking, right? So what do we want to do about that? The, the, the kind of work that other countries have done, like in Amsterdam or London or New York, places with world-class entertainment districts, they have a nightmare. Someone whose job it is to be responsible for treating the nighttime economy as a place of artistic you know, and, and entertainment options to come together and contribute to the vibrancy of the city. So for us, the overall goal here, and how we're, we're really excited about this, is we want to work with the city to build and foster a world-class hospitality and entertainment district that we as British Columbians can be proud of, and we can market internationally to bring more tourists to the city, which is good for our economy as well. And looking at the list of the kind of the, these are called the key policy considerations for the, yeah. the planning and for the future. It goes through things. It's, you know, reestablish Granville as a premier destination for all uh, to prioritize reconciliation, uh, keep culture at the heart of the street. It says to expand day and nighttime activity. Um, yeah. It also talks about the distinctive heritage and the character of Granville Street, which is also something uh, if you walk along there or, or look at some of the construction, I know they're trying to preserve a lot of that and such. What about the issue, though, of vehicles? This is also very much yeah. keeping it a public space. Uh, it says right in the report for walking, stopping, gathering, celebrating, but people still need to get there. 
Yeah, they, they absolutely do. But this all starts again with, with having a plan because what we've been doing is just sort of been pretty piecemeal about it. And it makes an eminent sense to, you know, for example, remove cars from large sections of Grenville Street to encourage pedestrian traffic. But where are those cars supposed to go? Where are we going to be parking them? Right. So you have to look at the streets adjacent to them and making sure you have the infrastructure to do that. Right. Saying we're going to close it to Granville Street and put bike lanes on the adjacent streets and not give cars anywhere to go. Doesn't feel like we've planned that out. Right. The goal here is to make it accessible, in our view, from foot traffic to bicycle, from public transit and cars in a way that works for everybody. You can also look at before the pandemic, we had long discussions with the city and others, you know, because the, the nighttime economy often gets blamed for any kind of problems that exist on the street and even though they're, they're not the responsibility of them but you know we, we're looking at how do we find a way to build something that's going to work for everybody and the city just wasn't able to support on it because they didn't have that plan but putting it together now and getting all the right stakeholders to it i think you'll be surprised that we're going to find out the tremendous assets we have with those unique historic buildings the amount of businesses that are willing to invest right that are just looking for a bit of support from the city on it and the kind of things that we can do to build a destination we can all be proud of. So that's that's what's happening today. Now, and it's, let's be real, it's not going to happen overnight. <laughs> We've got to take some time and go through the consultation process of this. But uh, I think we can build that plan now so that everybody knows what we want to do and we can get on the same page about it. Uh, you mentioned housing as well. That's also on the list of things to, to look at. And it's, it says to create uh, new affordable housing opportunities in appropriate locations, uh, define the role of SROs, social yeah. supportive housing. Do, do you think there is a role there, though, in that was, we certainly have seen other communities where different types of housing are, are integrated and and there is kind of that mix of housing as well as maybe uh, entertainment districts or, or, or different types of of, of destinations and what might draw some people? Yeah, I think the key focus there is you have to think about appropriate locations, right? You, there's no sense of putting this, this is sort of a six block area, um, you know, and going out a couple blocks from Howe to Seymour on the other side. You don't need to put affordable housing into that particular corridor from it. This is some of the most expensive real estate in the city and in the entire country, and the goal is to make it vibrant for businesses and the people who live in those areas. They can live a block away from it in either direction, but putting it in that area, making the consideration, doesn't really seem to make sense. The plan here has to be to build a vibrant, sustainable, and thriving cultural, artistic, and entertainment district for the city that's going to help contribute to our economy and the overall livability of our city. And we can't pretend that every single block has to have a mix of commercial and residential and everything. Like, that's just not how any other entertainment district or other modern municipality would do it around the around the world. Uh, you mentioned too, so this isn't going to happen overnight, as we know. I think one no. of the timeline that I saw was 18 months that mm-hmm. we might see a change or might see something happen. Do you think that's a reasonable amount of time or we, we might see something in, say, a year and a half? Yeah, I think that is actually. I, I, I think, you know, everybody wants to do things faster, but I've worked in and around government long enough to know that things take the time they take. Mm-hmm. But we also have to make sure that we're hearing from all stakeholders, right? I mean, I'm, I'm giving you my opinion, but there may be others who live and work in the entertainment district who would like to see it done slightly differently. And we also have to look at all of those little rules that we have now that we've just added on and start to question the policy rationale. And as one example, in the, in the liquor industry, we have some nightclubs that are, have to close at 2 o'clock, get a block away. There's some that are allowed to stay open until 3 o'clock. Why? Because the city has a plan that says on that side of the street, that's what happens, right? So we have... Little rules like that we have to look at. And then we have to look at how we balance the investment needed to actually get the street to what we all want it to be. 
All of that takes time. It takes meetings. The hospitality and liquor industry here in BC are, are, are raring to go. We've been doing some work on this for the past in a few years, uh, and we're eager to work with Mayor Sim and the ABC councillors to get this done because we, we really appreciate that they, they, they have stepped up the plate um, after years of neglect in this area to, to make something happen. All right. Jeff Gwinnard, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time today. It's my pleasure. Have a good one. It is time to talk holidays and travel news. Joining us, as she does every Wednesday at this time, is Claire Newell, the president and founder of Travel Best Bets. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. And you know what? It feels like for the first time since the new year, it's not like a hair on fire travel news situation. So I feel like (laughs) I can give you some news and it's not all bad talking about the chaos that's been going on. Um, But one of the first things I wanted to share with people is um, if you are planning to go to Mexico and you're a smoker, you should really beware because Mexico has just put in place one of the world's strictest anti-smoking rules, completely banning cigarette smoke in all public places. So Previously, the ban had only applied to like bars and workplaces and restaurants, but now it includes parks and beaches and hotels, plus anywhere that children gather. And it went into effect on January 15th. So just keep that in mind. And that's a pretty sweeping ban. And I'm guessing, too, that it's not just a ban and, and people will ignore it. This is something they're going to enforce. Oh, for sure. They they are going to enforce it. The other rule has been in place for 15 years or so, but they're just taking it to the next level. And it's a, I, I think they're, you know, they're being a leader in this. I think maybe only in New Zealand has something st- more strict, but um, it's good. It's good to see. I, it is really good to see. It's just, I know a lot of people like to, you know, smoke outside if, if that's, they're used to that or smoking on the balcony of a hotel room. So just you know you can't do that if you're going to Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> I know also a lot of people, for whatever reason, like to use the beaches as a giant ashtray. So it'll be nice that that's not going to be happening in Mexico. Yeah, it really annoys me when I see kind of butts in public places, especially beaches. So, yeah, that'll be that. I hope I hope that one day everywhere in the world you can't smoke on beaches. <laughs> All right, there you have it. But for now, that is in place in Mexico. Let's yeah. talk a little bit as well. Some news coming out of JetBlue. Yeah, this is really great for Vancouver. Now, For it may sound like deja vu that there's going to be a new flight between Vancouver and Boston with JetBlue. It was originally planned for last year and at the same time, they, around the same time they were starting New York City. They are going to New York City, but they never uh, ended up doing Boston. And so that is actually going to start happening. They're going to be flying into Boston Logan International Airport on June the 15th. So that will be good, right? Kind of, it's, it's already on sale. There's some, some good fares out now, the kind of introductory fares. Um, but this is good. And, you know, a lot of people think that JetBlue is a low-cost carrier. I actually had some of the agents in our office say, hey, are they low-cost? They're actually not. They're the sixth largest airline in the U.S., and they have a lot of things that other airlines don't offer. They used to be, when they first came into the market, more low-cost, but now they've got like live TV and um, free and fast Wi-Fi. You get soft drinks and snacks that are complimentary on board, so they've definitely changed. It's kind of a better... Um, economy experience than a lot of other carriers. So just know that. Uh, pretty good flight times as well. 5.40 p.m. arriving at 9 
8.07. That's from Boston to Vancouver. So you get to spend the whole day if you're in Boston coming uh, coming back. And the flight from Vancouver to Boston, 10 a.m. Oh, sorry, 10 p.m., um, getting in at 6.30 a.m. And a lot of people love that, that overnight type, because you don't have to pay for a hotel when you land. But it's a long day. Yeah. Um, I'm one of those people. I used to do that cafe overnight to New York City. Do you remember that? Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I used to love that. I'd, I'd get to my hotel, drop my bags, and go for a big long walk and, and start my day. Yeah, I think you and I are lucky in that we can sleep on airplanes. I think for people, if you can't sleep on the plane, that does make for a very, very long day and not a great start to your trip. Yeah. Oh, you're right. You're right. I do feel very lucky that I can, as soon as a, as soon as a, a motor starts or a, or they start to pressurize the plane, I literally am zonked. So yes, you're right. Not ever. It's not for everybody. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about Hilton. Uh, they have launched a new kind of premium economy style brand. Just um, it's on the lower end economy type style. And I think this is perfect timing. It's kind of like how Zellers is coming back. You know, it's it's not a great um, market. Inflation's high and things are expensive. And so this is a really cool new brand. And it'll be quite simple style. So almost like a Scandinavian style for a lot of the hotels. Um, they'll have 24-hour digital check-in, digital key, uh, simple complimentary breakfast, uh, a 24-hour retail market. So I think this is going to be... Uh, a really, it's kind of an underserved segment in travel. And I think that a lot of people are going to like this, whether you're going for a business or leisure, there's not really a consistency in that kind of premium economy brand. So it's called Spark by Hilton. Um, so it's just starting. So if that's something in your wheelhouse, it might be worth taking a look online. Interesting. And they must have done the research, I would think, and looked at that and thought, well, there is a market of people looking for that. Maybe they're not going to shell out the money for more traditional Hilton, but definitely, but also don't want to go completely the other end of budget. Yeah, I think this is a really good segment. I know I personally would stay in this type of accommodation if it was, especially if it had a, a feel that was, because a lot of the, the Hilton, they, their flags go on independently owned hotels. They just are the um, kind of the umbrella so you can do centralized reservations and things. And I know that they've gone quite kind of local with some of the types of brands that they've got in the marketplace because it's a huge umbrella brand, um, especially if this is priced right. It could be something that I, I know I personally will, will look at. Oh, yeah, for sure. You also have an update uh, and maybe not as recognizable as Hilton, but Nobu Hospitality. Yeah, so lots of people know that, you know, that kind of shishi fancy Nobu restaurants and really the hotels started out of these cool locations of restaurants that were successful and they built hotels kind of in those areas. There's 32 of them now, but Five new ones are going to be opening in 2023, including Rome, Marrakesh. Actually, Marrakesh, I think, just opened last week. Um, Atlantic City, San Sebastian in Spain, and one here in Canada, in Toronto. Um, and they also just just last year opened Bangkok and Abu Dhabi. Abu Dhabi was actually the 32nd property. So this is a growing brand, certainly not on the lower end, um, but I think that it's... it's um, 
their whole vibe is that you'll have this really great experience when you're traveling. Um, and a lot of it will be around the memories of food. And I can tell you, <laughs> food is a big part of me when I travel. <laughs> oh, yes, definitely. Uh, you mentioned uh, with JetBlue and some of the things that they've added, the snacks and soft drinks and Wi-Fi. Uh, Delta also, it seems like more air- airlines are realizing that that is something that people really want. And part of the reason, Jill, I think is because internet has become more affordable, like the technology is getting better and you can do, um, you can have that faster speed on board aircraft that you, like when they first came out, it was really crummy. If you ever, even if you paid for it, it was awful. But starting on February 1st, Delta is going to be providing free Wi-Fi. You do have to be part of their loyalty program, but that's free to join. So it's really worth, you know, spending the two minutes and joining their loyalty program to get that free Wi-Fi if you have a Delta flight. Um, they're going to be offering it on 700 aircraft by the end of this year. Uh, most of them are going to be on their mainline domestic flights. So they said that's just the start. The airline does plan to offer free Wi-Fi on international and regional aircraft, which are the little ones, by the end of 2024. Um, but it's, you know, they're the first of the big four U.S. airlines to do this. Uh, but there's a lot of airlines that are going, like you said, JetBlue is one. Here in Canada, Porter, um, which I know that we're not as familiar with Porter Airlines out west, but we will be soon because starting on February 7th, Uh, Porter Airlines is going to be flying between Vancouver and Toronto Pearson on these really cool new Embraer aircraft that are 132 seats and just two by two configuration. So a middle aisle, two on each side and no middle seat. And they're going to have free Wi-Fi and all the kind of the bells and whistles with food and drinks and things. So, um, yeah, I don't think this is going to be something that uh, airlines look twice that i think if they have the opportunity to put wi-fi on their aircraft uh, they will do it because it's 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 becoming just that much more common and in the eu it's mandated that as of i think it's june i can't remember i i i know i i mentioned it on our segment what's previously but by summer uh, of 2023, if you're heading to Europe, you have to have 5G, 5G, so you can actually make calls and stream. Hopefully, yeah. people will put their headphones in, um, but yes. that's going to be really interesting to see. Uh, and you know, that just we always look to Europe to see what happens here in North America, and it's coming. It is coming. All right, and uh, well, one more before maybe we get to the deals. And people love it when the plane is on time, and we know which airlines are the most most punctual. Yeah, we do. So um, the the top spots went to um, a South African carrier and a Brazilian airline, but only three North American airlines made the top 10 global list. Delta, which we were just talking about, is one of them, United Airlines and American Airlines. So fifth, seventh and 10th place, respectively. And in North America only, they have like their own little list. WestJet took ninth and Air Canada took 10th. Uh, for on-time arrival. But just to give you uh, an idea, number one was at 88.93%. That was Hmm. the top spot. Wow. Um, In in, in North America, uh, well, 9th and 10th WestJet and Air Canada were (laughs) 59.1 and 54.51%. So, um, you know, obviously there's some improvement to be had there for sure. All right. And uh, yeah, no big surprise, I think, for anyone who's been stuck on uh, those airplanes. Uh, Let's get people traveling. What deals do you have today? 
Well, I thought I would first share a seven-night Alaska cruise. Uh, I, I just took a look at what's, what's kind of moving and shaking at the moment because it's really, really busy at the office, and there are so many Alaska cruises being booked right now. Um, so May 21st through until September 17th, seven nights uh, sailing round trip from Vancouver doing an Alaska cruise uh, is four ninety nine. taxes of three twenty nine. And if you book it by January 22nd, on sailings after July 23rd, so kind of peak season, you, you get an extra $50 US onboard credit per cabin. So uh, some really good deals out there in the marketplace for Alaska. They're on the website. Um, people are really wanting hotspots still. Obviously, it's you know pretty cold and pretty gray outside. Um, but January the 28th, 29th, or 30th, I found this deal. And I love this one. Airfare and seven nights in a four-and-a-half-star beachfront all-inclusive resort in the Riviera Maya. 915 taxes mm. of 480 for those who know it it's the four and a half star blue bay grand esmeralda a really nice property do you have time for the last one yes absolutely okay so this is um a, a nine night fully guided vacation it basically does the best of Britain and Ireland. This is one of those types of um, guided vacations I would recommend for someone going for the very first time or who really doesn't want to do any of the planning and they just want to sit back and enjoy and everything's taken care of. It is a nine-night fully guided vacation with a accommodation, professional guide, 11 meals and sightseeing tours, 1879 tax included. Hmm. So a great buy if that's something that uh, is in, you know, kind of on your agenda, you'd like to see Britain and Ireland. I think that's a great deal. All right. Uh, some great ideas. You're right. It's a little gray out there. So the sunshine seems pretty nice right now. Yeah, that's on my list if I was to pick right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, definitely. Claire, thank you so much. And we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds great. Thanks, Jill. Just before the news headlines, uh, I played that story for you about uh, a family that was traveling to Chile upset about the fact that Air Canada left the wheelchair in Toronto. Even though they left the wheelchair as far as they could go, they actually weren't even concerned about that because they'd got it to the point in their journey where it seemed impossible that it wouldn't make it along with the family. The airline gave the family 300 bucks as well as a loaner we wheelchair but as you heard in that report the family saying it just wasn't good enough it wasn't something that uh, he could use for any length of time and it was threatening to ruin their vacation as they were getting on a cruise and luckily the wheelchair has arrived we've we've had an update from the family it was Wendy Elliott that you heard in that story and they updated social media saying that the wheelchair did arrive in time for everybody to get on the cruise ship but it was a very very stressful time for the family. Unfortunately, this is something that happens, well, you could say quite often. We've talked about it before on this program, and it's every time it happens, there are questions raised. Why is this happening? Why are wheelchairs and mobility devices treated like pieces of luggage when clearly they are much more than that? Well, Mayan Ziv is joining us once again, a disability advocate, also the CEO of the accessibility app Access Now. Mayan, thank you so much for being with us once again. Hi, Jill. When you hear about this, and, and I should, I guess I should back up a bit in case people uh, didn't hear when you were on with us before, you joined us when something similar happened to you when you were going to a conference on a very big trip. 
your wheelchair uh, was quite damaged. So after what you went through and what you heard when you talked about that, what goes through your mind hearing about something like this happening again? You know, unfortunately, I'm just so not surprised that this is happening again. In the U.S., the statistics show that roughly 29 wheelchairs or scooters are damaged or lost a day. And so we don't actually have the statistics for Canada. Airlines are not required by law to report those publicly. But this is happening to people with disabilities every single day. It's just not always reported on in the news. So unless, you know, the the airlines are going to show up and make changes, unless the government is going to step in and make policies, this is going to continue to happen, unfortunately. Do you think it would be a good first step at least? I mean, obviously it would be great if this never happened, but would it be a good first step if we did have that policy in Canada where we at least knew the numbers? Absolutely. I think, you know, the data holds us accountable. And unless airlines are forced to report they will continue to behave this way. Air Canada is going to try and bury the stories. They'll try and pay off, you know, people who've had problems, you know, the $300 here or try and, you know, do damage control. But no one is really thinking about what happens to someone like myself who uses a wheelchair or the gentleman who was without his own wheelchair as well. What happens to that person? You know, our, our mobility devices are extensions of our bodies. Are, they are the things that we need in order to get around, to be mobile, to be supported. They're extremely custom, but it's not the same as losing the luggage and, you know, getting the, out the next day and buying something to replace it. It can take months if they're damaged, and if they're lost, it can ruin an entire trip and cause some really serious health concerns. Uh, in your case, I know, again, we talked to you when you were going to that conference in Tel Aviv. How did things get resolved in your case? Well, Joe, I can tell you that I've only received my replacement this week. So I had my wheelchair declared a total loss in September, and I've had to navigate all different types of ways with replacement wheelchairs, temporary solutions. I've been in tremendous pain because my wheelchair is custom to me. It takes a long time to source parts, to, to design the chair, the right specs. Uh, and so it's been a very long process. I'm still working on customizing my chair just to get back to normal. Uh, So it's been a long, very frustrating process and one that no paying customer of any airline should have to go through just because they want to take a trip. That's, I'm, I'm shocked by that. And maybe I shouldn't be given by, like you said, this is happening all the time. But, but we talked to you, it, it was September that we talked to you, wasn't it? It was September. It was the very beginning of September. Oh, and, and is it that, that the parts weren't available or, or what was it that, that has made it so, so just now you're getting the replacement? Well, you know, we've, we've been hearing across the board of manufacturing supply shortages for all different types of industries. The wheelchair industry is no different. You know, there are parts that take a long time to source. And then every time I have to meet with a technician to get the chair, you know, to try it out, to make different changes, it, it takes a long time to customize something to really be supportive, uh, and, and it is very unique to each individual. So there's been a lot of waiting around. I waited, you know, I think it was two, at least two months before Air Canada even approved um, the, the payment for a replacement wheelchair. Uh, it's just a very long, frustrating process. And again, you know, there's no consideration of my time 
my frustration, you know, all of the days off work that I had to miss, the pain that I've been in, you know, even just the anxiety that I face now as a traveler, you know, I have no trust in the airline industry. I have no um, certainty that the next time I get on a plane, this isn't going to happen again. So unfortunately, this is just a seriously systemic issue. Uh, it's, it's continuing to impact people with disabilities. And I really feel that unless the government steps in and mandates a much more painful um, response from airlines every time this does happen, we're not going to see any major changes. Are there rules in place, though, or are, is there legislation, the, um, the Accessibility Canada Act, or are there, are there things in place that are supposed to protect people that use wheelchairs, that, that have mobility um, requirements and mobility aids, that, that are supposed to protect them given the, the circumstances when flying or traveling and that's just not being done, or, or do we not have those protections? So under the Accessible Canada Act, transportation is something that's federally regulated and it does impact airlines like Air Canada. However, that's governed by the CTA and we don't yet really have progressive laws in place and standards that properly protect people with disabilities. The way it's set up right now is that when you have an issue, it is the onus is on the individual to file a complaint to know what to do, to contact the right authorities. And the the imbalance of power there, in my opinion, is way off. We're talking about people with disabilities often who are often stranded, in pain, without independence. It's their responsibility to file a claim. And then they are battling with multi-billion dollar organizations like airlines to get to a resolution. I mean, to me, that sounds way off. Yeah, because I can't, I can't even imagine. I, I mean, I'm sure you, you have an idea of how much time it must have taken you. And your time is valuable. Your time is worth something. How much you had to then dedicate and, and put to actually trying to get this resolved and to get to your new chair. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm not, it's not like I've got a whole company behind me that's ready to work on, on all my disability issues when airlines make mistakes, you know. It's, I'm an individual just trying to live my life and expecting the same equity, dignity, respect, uh, and safety that any passenger would expect on an airline. The fact that people with disabilities are continuously, you know, at risk for their health and safety just because they want to take a flight. I mean, we're talking about human rights here. In my opinion, this is really edging on discrimination now because it's not a one-off. It's not an anomaly or a mistake. If there is a pattern of behavior against a specific group, I mean, this is a really serious issue that needs to be addressed at the highest levels of government. Even something is when we talked in September, following that conversation, uh, there were so many people that reached out to me and said, oh, this is this is not unusual at all. Talk to anybody who uses a wheelchair who has flown and guaranteed they will have a scenario. They will have a story about a time when their wheelchair was damaged and and maybe not to the extent that yours was damaged, but arrived at the destination in not the same condition that it was put on the plane. And and, and even that, if, if there was something that that 
I don't know, changed that. I mean, and again, it's not luggage. I think everybody has probably had damaged luggage or had luggage gone missing in the past. And it's an inconvenience, but it doesn't stop you from from moving around. Even if we addressed that and the, the issue of damaged wheelchairs, do you think that would be a start? Absolutely. Currently, wheelchairs are totally considered luggage by the airline industry. Like, there's no other way to put it. They can say that it's not true, but all of the processes, all of the protocols continuously just treat wheelchairs like luggage. They're loaded the same way as luggage. They're, um, you have to file claims just like you would if it was a luggage uh, claim. There's no difference from their point of view. And that is already signaling that they're not recognizing the severity of impact when a damage or a, a lost claim is actually happening. So I think you're, you're totally on to something. When, when my story went live, I can tell you, I heard some people all over the world, literally millions of people reached out to me on social media and let me know, you know, that this had either happened to them, that they know someone, or that they were just terrified to even think about getting on a plane because they had heard so many people have had issues. And, you know, I think one of the major things that the airlines are, are, are missing is that this is a demographic that they are not tapping into. We are paying customers. And that if the proper resources were invested in actually making this an accessible and inclusive experience for a customer who has an accessibility need, they would gain that customer. And that would be a loyal customer. They're looking at it as a cost of doing business instead of recognizing the upside that you actually benefit from when you invest in accessibility. All right. Well, Mayan, thank you so much for coming on the show once again and raising more attention about this. And uh, unfortunate that that it was because there's been yet another case of this. And in this case, a wheelchair not arriving. Uh, thankfully, that wheelchair has arrived. But certainly, uh, like you said, a lot more needs to be done to stop this from happening in the future. Uh, Mayan, again, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Jill.